0: Welcome to Scripps Talks. Today, it's my pleasure to be hosting Peter Shaplin, who has been a partner in crime with first Tom Hodson and then me as directors of the School of Journalism. And I thought I would take this opportunity in reflecting back on my career to talk to Peter today and somewhat about COVID-19, but also about other things that might come up. So welcome to the podcast, Peter.
1: Professor, it's great to be here.
0: You have engaged with the School of Journalism for uh, a decade plus, which is quite astonishing because you are not a resident of Athens, you are not a resident of Ohio, you are not a resident of the Midwest, but you are a resident of the Great Left Coast. Um, (laughs) And so tell me quickly, tell, tell our listeners how it is that you came to... Be Connected with Tom Hodson.
1: Well, it's a great story, and it really dates from covering some of the high-profile trials, specifically the Scott Peterson double murder trial here in San Mateo, California, the Michael Jackson molestation trial in Santa Maria, and the O.J. Simpson fourth felony, that was his trial in Las Vegas, and from those trials where I was the high Uh, I was the media pool coordinator. Those are called HPTs, high-profile trials. I was introduced to folk at the National Judicial College, including Tom. And we did a couple of programs together for some state Supreme Courts. And he said, why don't I come to Athens and visit? And I said, yes. And that's the story.
0: When I first met you, you were actually here for a Schoonman symposium, is my recollection.
1: Right, on the Vietnam War.
0: That was one of the very, very early symposiums that we had. So that predates my becoming director. But you and I started working on a little project, which we concocted with Mr. Hodson called the J Freshman Newsroom. How do you explain to your friends and colleagues what the J Freshman Newsroom is?
1: After a couple of days in Athens, Quite literally, at my last lunch, as I had to dash to Columbus to fly to the left coast, we had lunch at the bottom of Baker Center, and Jay Fresh was sketched out on the back of a napkin. I only wish I had that napkin. It was a great idea that was truly organic, and it stemmed from, I think, your question, which was, soon you'd be shifting from the quarters to the semesters, and what could you do to help students get ready for what was going to be a pretty substantial change? And I was working uh, at the networks, uh, still am, but I was, I was much more involved with network news coverage at that point, and started to speak about how we could help prepare students both for writing, audio, and video as storytellers. I actually get to giggle a little bit to say this was an idea that began on a napkin. And it's changed. It's grown every year. I think we got through 11 years. And every year was ever ever so slightly different. We still were talking about storytelling, the art, the majesty of storytelling. But as we've evolved, we've also mirrored the business. And now it's not just print guys or audio guys or video guys and gals. You have to be an absolutely multi-platform player. And what we tried to do at JFresh was to let students get their first exposure and experience in doing stories on multiple platforms. And that was kind of cool.
0: So the structure, obviously, the fresh part of JFresh would would, uh, signify to our listeners that this was aimed at freshmen, and in fact, it was the very first quarter or semester, depending on what time period we're talking about, for the freshmen. And I wonder if you recall what the rationale was for working with these very, very young students yeah. fresh out of high school. What what was the logic there?
1: I think the logic was that we wanted to get them before they had any any exposure to bad habits. We wanted <laughs> Not that there are any bad habits, of course, at, at an academic institution. But the fact is that I was I was coming at it from the from a professional perspective of treating these kids as if they were interns who were working for me, and what I would want them to know and experience and explore. Because let's face it. Coming out of high school, and there's some great high school programs, but you were you were actually insistent that we and rightly so that we take a wide swath, a big spectrum. We had students who had come from high schools that had terrific journalism programs, and we had some that came from programs that had television, and we also took some students who had applied to scripts because of passion, not because of experience and so We tried to mirror that, even though it was a blind admissions, but we tried to mirror that based on their letters and their their requests to to get into the program. And, you know, what was really special was for all of them, we had kids who were probably editors-in-chief from their high school newspaper sitting next to students who had experience that could be measured as bupkis. And they suddenly had to collaborate and help each other And it wasn't what you knew as a writer, it was what you knew as a storyteller and what you could do with your ideas. Because a lot of high school coverage is about things that have already happened in the past tense. Not all of it, of course, but some of it. What happened at the school board meeting and what does it mean or whatever. And here we were trying to take something that was in in real time and working as teams on some years and individually on other years How could they both go out on the same story and take it from a different medium, an audio medium or a print medium, a video medium or a podcast medium? And how would it be different? What would each bring to the story and then put them together side by side? And how do they complement each other? Which was, at the earliest days, the definitions of convergence. We've long since passed that by. We've gotten even better than that.
0: It's... Worth pointing out here to our listeners that for the most part, most semesters, most years that we had J Freshman, this was not part of the curriculum, but rather something extra and not for credit. It was simply offered to anyone who wanted to push themselves and challenge themselves. And as a result of that offer that we made, you got to work with some students who seem to have a bit of an appetite to go beyond the, the the minimum. And I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on, on what, you know, what was a great example of that kind of going beyond the minimum.
1: Gee, Bob, there's just, there's so many. I'll do a disservice by only highlighting a couple when there are so many, but i'm happy to answer that question because to be honest i'm really so proud of all of the students we had a bunch who were in news we had some who migrated to stratcom as a result we have folks who are now in major media and also in the cream of the crop agencies i think that Jay fresh actually may have preceded 2311 i think that we were ever so slightly ahead on that but as a result of our kids, our students initiative. I can think of one student right now who's working with artificial intelligence and smart speakers. I can think of another student who went off to Lucas Films and their games environment. One of our earliest students was an early employee of Oregon Public Broadcasting, OPB, on their digital side, and OPV is a phenomenal organization, we've got folks who've gone to newspapers. We've got folks right now at MSNBC, Cleveland TV stations, stations all over the country from Oklahoma City. I just talked to a student who was at JFresh. She did not stay at OU for her entire four years, but she's just surfaced in San Luis Obispo, California. So They've spread absolutely across the country, but they're doing things like AI and digital news coverage and traditional media, both in print and in audio and in video. I am just so proud of what they've accomplished, what they've achieved.
0: Walk us through how you actually worked with these students because you you were three time zones away. You, know, you were not for the most part, not able to drop in on class, although we can talk about some of those rare uh, moments as well. But how did you do it?
1: You know, I think that uh, it, gosh, there are two parts of that answer. One was the students were willing to trust me and show up to Skype meetings. And the second is that uh, I was happy to make them a priority. And so as a result... We treated it as if it was a live program. And even my rundown, even my syllabus was for me what's called a run of show, a Hollywood term of a live program, and that made it organic. And so I remember beginning uh, classes where we would start, and I'd say, you know, good evening, Athens. Welcome. I'm in San Francisco. And on today's program, we're going to go to Nairobi. Or we're going to go to Shanghai, and we're going to go to New York, or we're going to go to Ho Chi Minh City, and we're going to go to Portland, Oregon. And I had the feeling, and it was intentional, and I don't mean to boast about it, but it was intentional. I wanted them to sit in a conference room in Athens, Ohio, and suddenly realize that we could connect the world to them, then and there, live and direct. And that goes back to the earliest days of Ed Murrow, and see it now, if you really want to be honest. And all of a sudden, you're no longer in a classroom. You're now in an experience. You're in an experience. And education can be an experience. And so I tapped everyone in my Rolodex. And boy, does that date me just by using that phrase. I tapped my friends. And I invited them. And I said, will you come talk with us? And they said yes. And so that's how we did it. And as you, as you recall, there was one night, uh, it was a terrible explosion here in San Francisco where... Uh, The local utility blew up a neighborhood and uh, a crew and I were sent out by ABC and we quite literally broke past the police barriers by going down a hillside. And we were in a an area, a neighborhood of San Bruno, where there were, I believe, eight deaths and about 30 homes torched to the foundations. And uh, in fact, we were in so early that there were still bodies on the street because the coroner had not been allowed to come in. But we were doing this for ABC News and ultimately went out to a, a satellite truck. And in those days, j Fresh began at about 8 a.m. Eastern time. Well, that was 5 a.m. my time. I said to the crew, I need a light. And they said, what do you need a light for? I said, give me a light. And Bobby Goldsboro brought out a light and sat me out in front of the satellite truck. And we did Jay Fresh from the street. And I think it said to the kids, we can do anything. You can do anything. It was an experience, and I don't mean to keep using that word. It was something that they would not have gotten in a normal class. The other part that was so much fun, and maybe a little bit distressing to some of the traditionalists on your faculty, I could talk with the kids at any time they wanted. Time zones worked in our favor. Students would would ping me by Skype at 11 o'clock at night, midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. in the morning for them, but it was only 11 o'clock my time. And I knew that it was working because I knew that they had spoken about me and the program, even with their roommates. And on several occasions, I would be in the midst of a conversation with a student on Skype, and a roommate would walk past the camera and casually say, hi, Peter. I never knew who the roommate was. And they casually are saying, hi, Peter, because one of our J Fresh had told them, oh, yeah, I'm talking with Peter Chaplin out on the West Coast. I think what was most satisfying was that I began to appreciate that I was approachable and reachable and the time zones did not matter. And we became asynchronous. If they wanted something, if they had a question about something, they could ask. And if my green Skype light was on, I'd answer and that's a very cool way to teach i think it was obviously a pretty cool way to learn and you know what the green light is still on and students are still reaching out even 11 years later
0: well let's talk a little bit about that those those moments where we brought you to campus <laughs> And uh, maybe maybe reflect for our listeners what that was like for you when you got to meet the students, you know, in in uh, meet space, you know, and in face to face. Uh, I mean, those those words don't really work because with Skype, you were face to face. But I mean, in person,
1: coming to campus was a treat. I had never been to Athens prior to my first invitation and I grew to absolutely love my visits. There were years when we surprised the students and just walked in on them. There were years when with your help, as a matter of fact, at uh, at one of the gates, we were arranging for, you were arranging for a class picture, and I just walked up from behind you and sat down next to you, which made a number of the students wonder, who is that man sitting next to Professor Stewart? Until they realized it was me. Uh oftentimes people would say, you know, you look taller in person. <laughs> yes, that's, that's true. That's part of the miracle of television. What was most special was the connection both with the current JFresh as well as the alumni. And what made it really neat for me was, of course, I was there for a JFresh two to three hour meeting every week for which they never got academic credit. But they build a community, and that community actually continues because they use one another fairly well for jobs and apartments and internships and all kinds of connections that have lasted all of these years. But for me to come to campus was a chance to meet them. It was a chance to get to donkey coffee. Never underestimate that. For many years, I would uh, hold a Union Street Diner alumni reunion at midnight on the first or second night of my visit. That was always great because I I really learned that perhaps the most popular item on the menu is the milkshake and their their garlic cheese fries, which I might add, I do not share their affection for the garlic cheese fries. (laughs) But let me tell you, I bought many, many plates of that. And gosh knows, many more milkshakes, which were not on my diet, but I, I will confess to you and your listeners, I did indulge on many, many occasions. So it was a chance to meet the students. But also, what was great, and you, you, you were instrumental in this, Bob. For the first couple of years, you were my partner. You were my liaison on campus, and that was great. And then, as you got a little busier, you you fobbed me off on some graduate students, <laughs> many of whom. Were like terrific, like Allison comes immediately to mind. And then after that, we started to use homegrown talent. We started to use seniors who had called us and said, can I come back and do it with you? And we said yes. And that made it even more special because instead of a graduate student, with all reference to graduate students, people like Kate and Mallory and Jessica they became like big sisters they became trusted advisors to these young freshmen and it was even better and what's more instead of me telling them how such and such should be done we had students who were living it who showed them how to do it whether it was building a website or whatever and that was pretty fantastic.
0: I'll take this occasion to say thank you, Peter, for investing. I, I have other things I want to talk about, but I do want to say thank you for investing so much of yourself and, and maybe one last Jay Fresh question. You also teach in San Francisco and you've worked with students, you know, probably coast to coast. And I'm wondering if you would be willing or able to characterize what it is that makes a bobcat a bobcat. <laughs>
1: I do have students from around the world, from Latin America, Namibia, the Middle East, China, Vietnam, Bhutan, of course, here throughout the West Coast and the the United States. And then I have Bobcats. I have Bobcats. That's pretty freaking cool. The Bobcat community is a little bit more uh, homogeneous just by by its enrollment. I think that my Bobcat community tended to be a little bit more focused on media. They tended to be a little bit more excited and a little bit younger than some of my other classes, just by the nature of where I teach. I hope no one will take umbrage at this, but I think there was also a little bit more of a certain innocence and a sweetness. And, and and please forgive me listeners and 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 Bob, if that's not something that should be said, but there was a sweetness to the the community, and it was something that I was privileged to be accepted in and to share it and to get to be with them on part of a journey so it's really important to me and i'm I'm kind of suffering through the 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 pangs of it of it ending unexpectedly for for this year. I'm even thinking of ways of is offering a seminar of some sort to talk about the business that's changing even under our feet. But the time that I spent in Athens is is truly sounds sacred. So please just let me say it. It's a, it's among my most precious memories. It's so special to me. But that's because of the Bobcats.
0: When we think back on all of those nights that you met with them by way of Skype, and all of those individual you know, meetings that you talk to them either by phone or by Skype. And we think about the current time that we're in and how so much, in fact everything that we're doing from an education standpoint is done through this same type of technology and more so it's it's quite interesting that we were quite ahead of our time on this.
1: Who have sunk it and by gosh. As I'm looking forward to the next couple of years in both network media, corporate media, and also crisis work, what have you, I'm grappling at what it will look like and how it has already changed and is going to continue to change. At schools like ours, if you'll allow me to to say ours, you know, we've been making a, a product that's been really good for a really long time, but the market for our product has never been softer or more demanding, it's almost like, I don't know if this is a good or bad analogy, but it's almost like we were like really great early 20th century harness makers, and we made fantastic harnesses for the horse community. But at the same time, just down the street, somebody's beginning to come up with an idea for an assembly line in the Model T. What we've been doing is probably not going to be adequate going forward. It's not going to be sufficient. Oh, yes, it'll be good, but it's not going to be enough.
0: That brings the question to mind. With COVID-19 and all the challenges that this has presented to not just higher education, but media companies and news organizations, what is it going to take? You know, we are about, well, we just graduated our 2020 class and they're stepping out into a very challenging job market. And it will take some of them some time to become employed because right now the industry is, is probably in a, a kind of a hiring freeze that will last a while. What, what would be your recommendation, first of all, to the, to the students who just graduated, how to, how to keep growing and how to keep getting ready for what is to come?
1: If I had the complete answer to that i'd bottle it and make a fortune i think the first thing that the students are going to find is that the old sense of a newsroom will not really exist we're going to move to a distributed newsroom for a considerable period of time where people are working remotely and independently, and they've got to be self-sufficient. And that creates a problem for all students. Now, just speaking on my own life experience, I was the beneficiary of working at a CBS news environment where there was a reporter and a producer and a two-person camera crew, and we all talked with each other, and we all supported each other, and we all developed stories together. And then we started moving to the MJ, MMJ, VJ, DJ, acronyms are us world of independent one person does everything kind of model that's good that's certainly true for technology you can do it but it does not build a collaborative or supportive environment you don't get the feedback that's necessary especially as a student when you're both when you're just starting out even now that has been damaged by people working completely independently and remotely so For our students, I think they're going to need to have a much better sense of the business that they're entering and how the opportunities are going to change. And they're going to have to be not just technological wizards, but they're going to have to be even better storytellers. And they're going to need to have a greater sense of trusting their own curiosity, their own skills, especially their skills and understanding their senses and what role that has in being a great reporter, a great storyteller, a great strategic communicator. I think that the students are going to have a tough time getting jobs. I'm only afraid that for some, maybe even some of some of our faves, some of our best, I just hope that they don't get discouraged, because it's going to be easy to become discouraged with the amount of rejection that's going to be flying around these days. The COVID epidemic has so damaged the economy but it's really damaged our industry and it's going to take some time for that to come back
0: your history as in this industry uh, you've seen a lot of change maybe you could touch on your beginnings and then you know we've already kind of gotten to where you are now but where did it all start for peter chaplin
1: are you suggesting that i have gray hair and less and less of it
0: well, you don't sound like you have gray hair uh, and your energy. I've always told students that you have the energy of a 30-something-year-old, and that's always been, the, been true. You have an enthusiasm and energy that's, that's always inspiring, but you also have this perspective that is really valuable. Well, thank you,
1: Bob my beginning is is a lot of luck involved to my beginning and uh, some perseverance of course too i never thought that i would go into the family business my grandfather was a pretty well-known correspondent for the new york herald tribune and the new york times in fact he was the labor correspondent for the times in the 19 late 1940s and he would cover coal miner strikes in west virginia and steel strikes in pennsylvania his stuff was amazing and my dad was one of the most senior correspondents in southeast asia especially vietnam he spent Uh, pretty much every year from 1943 until his death in 1988 in Southeast Asia, mostly for The New Yorker magazine. And I had no intention of following in their footsteps. And then I got a job as a page at the 1972 political conventions in Miami Beach. And I never looked back. And from there, while I was still in high school, I did internships at CBS Sports Uh, at Foxborough Stadium, and then uh, election nights at CBS in New York, and eventually parlayed that into being a desk assistant at CBS. And yeah, that's the lowest form of editorial life. Would you like coffee? What would you like in it, sir or ma'am? And how quickly can I get your wire copy for you? I got assigned to the Cronkite News, uh, which was a, a great, great learning experience and ultimately was sent out to Los Angeles to become an assignment manager prior to returning back to New York, but I never went back. And so I stayed on the West Coast, and I went to ABC as a producer, got to work at Nightline in 2020, and Good Morning America, and World News Tonight, all of the shows. And so I had a really lucky run, just one of the really fortunate folk. But I also, and this is probably the most important part of it, I got to learn from masters of the craft. I got to learn from CBS correspondents and producers and ABC correspondents and producers. And maybe it's a little bit like a guild system where you come in as an apprentice and then you become a journeyman and then ultimately you become a master. I had the apprenticeship to die for and ultimately was, you know, got to be pretty good myself and got a lot of opportunities. Maybe quite frankly, that's kind of how I see myself at the moment. I've passed the journeyman stage after many years, and maybe it's about giving back. Maybe that's what masters do. You you do give back. You do pay it forward. But when I think of, like, why do I come into a classroom, I'm thinking about people who are, in some cases, long gone, but were instrumental in my life, Terry Drinkwater, Murray frommson. Dan Rather, of course, is still with us, but many people like that. Peter Jennings used to be a writer for him on the West Coast. So many people helped to teach me, who even helped to yell at me. Sam Donaldson, Sam yelled at everybody. But by gosh, I was lucky to learn from them. And they were gracious in the fact that they taught me.
0: Well, our students have been the beneficiaries of a lot of that without them even probably knowing most of those names.
1: No, because those names couldn't interest them less. They do not want war stories. It's always tempting for an old fart to say, well, when I was a lad, when I was a young lady, when I did this, there's no currency in that for them. As much as it's tempting to talk about all of the great and wonderful things that we've done, sounds like a line out of The Wizard of Oz, they really want to know this. What do you have that will be of value to me? And that is at the core of all communications. What is it that you're telling me and how are you telling it to me that I can feel some value for and then I will give it its importance? And that's also a huge, huge thing. And I don't want to get off on a soapbox here, but when I was a lad at CBS, the idea of the evening news was to put on at 630 at night what will be on the New York Times or the Washington Post front page tomorrow. And so we judge things based on their importance. And of course, let's be honest, that was usually being assessed by a bunch of middle-aged white men. But if it was important, if it was original, that made the program. And now, if you look at any program, it's no longer what we think is important. It's, are you being interesting? Interesting. Are you being entertaining? Now, I may not think this is the greatest scale, but it is the new scale, and it's what our students need to understand. They need to appreciate that it's not just important with a capital I. Can you tell the story and can you tell the facts in an interesting way? Because if you can, then the audience will make their own assessment that it is important to them based on the fact that you've made it interesting. They are the ones who now determine its importance based on their scale, not on ours. In that sense, there's been a democratization, both of the web and of the media. It's no longer just what we think. In fact, it's very little of what we think. It's no longer just top-down. And I think that some schools do that pretty well, and I think that some classes do it especially well.
0: The word interesting, I think, is an apt word to apply to all of the content that you presented our students for the last decade and I want to thank you for working hard to make it interesting but also to bring some enlightenment. Peter Chaplin thank you for everything you've done for the school and you've been a great friend and colleague so just want to say thank you to to you.
1: Well (laughs) it kind of breaks me up a little bit. Thank you Bob because it has been a pleasure it's been a remarkable ride. And it's one that I absolutely treasure. When everything is said and done, in my mind's eye, it's filled with the pictures of students and you and Athens. Bobcats all.
0: Thank you for joining us on Scripps Talks, Peter. Well, Bob, thank you for inviting me.